All right, Arthur Pink, spiritual growth. We're going to do some more sanctification stuff here. <clears throat> Introduction. <clears throat> the name is usually given to our subject by Christian writers is that of growth and grace, which is a scriptural expression being found in 2 Peter 3.18. But it appears to us that, strictly speaking, growing in grace is referenced to but a single aspect or branch of our theme. That your love may abound yet more and more, Philippians 1.9, treats of another aspect, and your faith groweth exceedingly, 2 Thessalonians 1.3, yet another. It seems then that spiritual growth is a more comprehensive and inclusive term, and more accurately covers that most important and desirable attainment, uh, Ephesians 4.15, may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. Let it not be thought from this that we have selected our title in a capacious spirit or because we are striving after originality. Not so. We have no criticism to make against those who may prefer some other appellation. We have chosen this simply because it covers more fitly and fully to describe the ground which we hope to cover. <clears throat> Our readers understand clearly what is connoted by physical growth or mental growth, nor should spiritual growth be any the less intelligible. This subject is a deeply important one. First, that we should seek to understand or write the Spirit's teaching on the subject. There seems to be comparatively few who do so, and the consequence is that the Lord is robbed of much of the praise which is His due. While many of His people suffer much needless distress, because so many Christians walk more and more by sense than by faith, measuring themselves by their feelings and moods rather than by the Word, their peace of mind is greatly destroyed and their joy of heart much decreased. Not a few saints are seriously the losers through misapprehensions upon this subject. Spiritual knowledge is essential if we are to better understand ourselves and diagnose more accurately our spiritual case. Many exercised souls form an erroneous opinion of themselves because of failure at this very point. Surely it is a matter of great practical moment that we should be able to judge a right of our spiritual progress or retrogression that we may not flatter ourselves on the one hand or unduly depreciate ourselves on the other. Some are tempted in one direction, some in the other, depending partly on their personal temperament and partly on the kind of teaching they have received. Many are inclined to think more highly of themselves than they ought, and because they have obtained considerable increased intellectual knowledge of the truth, imagine that they have a more proportionate spiritual growth. But others with weaker memories, and who acquire a mental grasp of those things more slowly, suppose this to signify a lack of spirituality. Unless their thoughts about spiritual growth be formed by the word of God, we are certain to err and jump to a wrong conclusion. As it is with our bodies, so it is with our souls. Some suppose they are healthy while they are suffering from an insidious disease, while others imagine themselves to be ill when they in fact are hale and sound. Divine revelation and not human imagination ought to be our guide in determining whether or not we are babes, young men, or fathers. But our natural age has nothing to do with it. It is deeply important that our view should be rightly formed, not only that we should be able to ascertain our own spiritual stature, but, but also that of our fellow Christians. If I long to be made a help and a blessing to them, then obviously I must be capable of deciding whether they are in a healthy or unhealthy condition. Or, if I desire spiritual counsel and assistance, then I will meet with disappointment unless I know uh, to whom I go. Unless I know to whom to go. How can I regulate my course and suit my converse with the saints if I, I contact if I am at a loss to gauge their religious caliber? God has not left, us, left it to us to our own erring judgment in this matter, but has supplied us 
rules to guide us. To mention but one other reason, which indicates the importance of our subject, unless I can ascertain whether I've been enabled to make spiritual progress and wherein I have failed, how can I know what to pray for? And unless I can perceive the same about my brethren, how can I intelligently ask for the supply of what they need most? Our subject is a very mysterious one. Physical growth is beyond human comprehension. We know something of what is essential to it, and the thing itself may be discovered, but the operation and process is hidden from us. As thou knowest not what is by way of the spirit, nor how to, the bones to grow in the womb of her that is with child, even so, thou knowest not the works of God who maketh all. Ecclesiastes 11.5 How much more so must spiritual growth be incomprehensible? <clears throat> the beginning of our spiritual life is shrouded in mystery. John 3.8 And to a considerable extent, this is true also of its development. God's workings in the soul are secret indiscernible to the eye of carnal reason, and imperceptible to our senses. The things of God knoweth no man, save to whom the Spirit is pleased to reveal them, 1 Corinthians 2, 11 and 12. If we know so little about ourselves to reveal them, 1 Corinthians 2, 11 and 12, excuse me, if we know so little about ourselves and the operation of our faculties in connection with natural things, how much less competent are we to comprehend ourselves and our graces in connection with that which is supernatural? The new creature is from above whereof our natural reason has no acquaintance. It is a supernatural product and can only be known by supernatural revelation. In like manner, the spiritual life <coughs> received at the birth, new birth thrives as to its degrees, unperceived by our senses. A child by weighing and measuring himself may discover that he has grown, yet he was not conscious of the process while growing. So it is with the new man. It is renewed day by day, 2 Corinthians 4.16. Yet in such a hidden way that the renewing itself is not felt, though its effects become apparent. Thus there is no good reason to be disheartened because we do not feel that we that any progress is being made, or to conclude there is no advance because such feeling is absent. There are some of the Lord's people in whom the essence and reality of holiness dwell, who do not perceive in themselves any spiritual growth. It should therefore be remembered that there is a real growth in grace where it is not perceived. We should judge of it not by what we experience of it in ourselves, but by the word. It is a subject for faith to be exercised on. That's a quote by S.E. Pierce. If we desire the pure milk of the word and feed upon, thereupon, then we must not doubt that we duly grow thereby. 1 Peter 2.3 To quote again for Pierce, <coughs> quote, Spiritual growth is a mystery and is more evident in some than in others. The more the Holy Spirit shines upon the mind and puts forth his life-giving influence of the, on the heart, so much more sin is seen, felt, and loathed as the greatest of all evils. And this is evidence of spiritual growth, namely, to hate sin as sin, and to abhor it on account of its contrariety to the nature of God. The quick perception and insight which we have of inherent sin and of our feeling of it, so as to look on ourselves as most vile to renounce ourselves and all that we can do for ourselves and to look holy and immediately to Christ for relief and strength, our growth in grace, and a more certain evidence of it. End of quote. How little is the natural man capable of understanding that? Having no experience of the same, it sounds to him like a doleful delusion. And how the believer needs to beg God to teach him the truth about this. As we know nothing whatever about the new birth, save what God has revealed in his word, so we can form no correct comprehension about spiritual growth except from the same source. Our subject is a difficult one. 
This is due in part to Satan's having confused the issue by inventing some such plausible imitations that multitudes are deceived thereby. And knowing this, the conscientious soul is troubled. Under certain influences and from various motives, people are induced suddenly and radically to reform their lives in their absence from the grosser forms of sin, accompanied by a zealous performance of the common duties of religion, is often mistaken for genuine conversion and progress in the Christian life. These are the terrors, which are so closely resemble the wheat that they are often indistinguishable until the harvest. Moreover, there is a work of the law quite distinct from the saving effects wrought by the gospel, which in its truth, both external and internal, cannot be distinguished from a work of grace except by the light of Scripture and the teaching of the Spirit. <clears throat> the terrors of the law have come in power to the conscience of many a one, producing a poignant conviction of sin and horrors of the wrath to come, issuing in much activity in the works of righteousness, but resulting in no faith in Christ and no love for Him. Again, spiritual progress is difficult to discern because growth in grace is often not nearly so apparent as first conversion. In many cases, conversion is a radical experience of which we are personally conscious at the time, and of, of which a vivid memory remains with us. It is marked by revolutionary change in our life. It was when we were relieved of the intolerable burden of guilt and the peace of God which passes all understanding, possesses our souls. It was being brought out of the awful and total spiritual darkness of nature into God's marvelous light, whereas spiritual growth is but the enjoying further degrees of that light. It was that tremendous change from having no grace at all to the beginning of grace within us, whereas that which follows is the receiving of additions of grace. It was the spiritual resurrection of being brought from death into life, but the subsequent experience is only renewings of the life then received. For Joseph, suddenly, to be translated out of prison to sit upon the throne of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh, would affect him far more powerfully than to have any new kingdoms added to him later, such as Alexander had. At first, everything in the spiritual life is new to the Christian. Later, he learns more perfectly what was then discovered to him. Yet the effect made is not so perceptible and entrancing. Further, the spiritual life or nature communicated at regeneration is not the only thing in the Christian. The principle of stone rule remains in the soul after the principle of grace has been imparted. These two principles are at direct variance with one another, engaged in ceaseless warfare as long as the saint is left in this world. Galatians 5.17 For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary one to another, so that you cannot do the things that ye would. That fearful conflict is apt to confuse the issue in the mind of its subject. Yea, it is certain to lead the believer to draw a false inference from, the, from it, unless he clearly apprehends the teaching of Scripture therein. The discovery of so much opposition within, the thwarting of his aspirations and endeavors, his felt inability to wage the warfare successfully, makes him seriously to doubt whether holiness has been imparted to his heart. The ragings of indwelling sin, the discovery of unsuspected corruptions, the consciousness of unbelief, the defeats experienced, all appear to give the lie <clears throat> direct to any spiritual progress. That presents an acute problem to a conscientious soul. Our subject is both a complex and a comprehensive one. By this we mean that there is a tree with many branches, which bears a different manner of fruits according to the season. It is a subject into which various elements enter, one that needs to be viewed from many angles. Spiritual growth is both upward and downward. It is both inward and outward. An increased knowledge of God leads to an increased knowledge of self, and as one results in a higher adoration of its object, the other deepens humiliation in its subject. 
these issue in more and more inward denials of self and abounding more and more in outwardly and good deeds. Yet the spiritual growth needs to be most carefully stated, lest we repudiate the completeness of regeneration. In the strictest sense, spiritual growth consists of the Spirit's drawing out what we, he has wrought in the soul when he quickened it. When a babe is born into the world, it is complete in parts, though not in development. No new members can be added to the body, nor any additional faculties to the mind. There is a growth in the, of the natural child, the development of its members, an expansion of its faculties, and a fuller expression and clearer manifestation of the latter, but nothing more. The analogy holds good with a babe in Christ. And this is a quote from Pierce again. Quote, Though there are innumerable circumstantial differences in the cases and experience of the called people of God, and though there is a growth suited to them, considered as babes, young men, and fathers, yet there is but one common life in the various stages and degrees in the same life, carried on to its perfections by the Holy Spirit until it issues in a glory eternal. The work of God, the Spirit, in regeneration is eternally complete. It admits of no increase or decrease. It is one and the same in all believers. There will not be the least addition to it in heaven. Not one grace, holy affection, desire, or disposition, then, which is not uh, in it now. <clears throat> the whole of the Spirit's work thereof, from the moment of regeneration to our glorification, is but to draw out those graces into acts and exercises which he hath wrought within us. And, though one believer may abound in the fruits of righteousness more than another, yet there is not one of them more regenerated than another. End of quote. The complexity of our subject is due in part to both the divine and human elements entering into it. And who is competent to explain or set forth their meeting point? Yet the analogy supplied from the physical realm again affords us some help. Absolutely considered, all growth is due to the divine operations. Yet relatively, there are certain conditions which we must meet or there will be no growth. To name no other, the partaking of suitable food is an essential prerequisite. Nevertheless, that will not nourish unless God be pleased to bless the same. To insist... <coughs> that there are certain conditions by which we must meet, certain means that which we must use in our spiritual progress is not to divide the honors with God, but is simply pointing out the order he has established and the connection he has appointed between one thing and another. In like manner, there are certain hindrances which we must avoid, or growth will inevitably be arrested and spiritual pro progress retarded. Nor does that imply that we are thwarting God, but only regarding his, disregarding his warnings and paying the penalty of breaking those laws which he has instituted the difficulty of expounding our subject. The very complexity of our subject increases the difficulty before the one attempting to expound it. For as is the case with so many other problems presented to our limited intelligence, it involves the matter of seeking to preserve a due balance between the divine and the human elements. The operations of divine grace and the discharge of our responsibility must each be insisted upon and the concurring of the latter with the former as well as the superabounding of the former over the latter must be proportionately set forth. In like manner, our contemplation of spiritual growth upward must not be allowed to crowd out that of our growth downward, nor must our deeper loathing of self be suffered to hinder an increasing living upon Christ. And, and when he talks about downward, he's, he's discussing the fact that it's one of the ironic things is the more and more you become sanctified, the more and more holy you become, the more and more you see yourself as a sinner and the more and more you see yourself as rotten. And uh, that's just a fact. And when you see somebody who's a baby Christian, and they're real self-confident and they think they're wonderful and 
super great and everything, well, that's that's a sign of being not very sanctified. <clears throat> the more sensible we are of our emptiness, the more we draw upon our fullness. Nor is our task rendered easier when we remember that we write that what we write will fall into the hands of very different types of readers who will sit under very kinds of ministry, the one needing emphasis upon a different note from another. If there is such a thing as spiritual growth is abundantly clear, clear from the scriptures, in addition to the passage alluded to in the opening paragraph, we may quote the following. Psalm 84.7 They that go from strength to strength. Proverbs 4.18 The path of the just is a shining path that shineth more and more unto the perfect day. Hosea 6.3 then shall we know if we follow on to know the Lord. Malachi 4.2 But unto you that fear the Lord shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and you shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. <coughs> John 1.16 And of his fullness we have all received in grace for grace. John 15.2 Every branch in me that beareth fruit, he purgeth that it may bear more fruit. 2 Corinthians 3.18 But we all, with our open face, beholding us in a glass, the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory as by the Spirit of the Lord. Colossians 1.10 Increasing in the knowledge of God. 1 Thessalonians 4.1 As ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God, so ye abound more and more. James 4.6 He giveth more grace. The above list may be extended considerably, but sufficient references have been given to show that not only is such a thing as spiritual growth clearly revealed in the scriptures, but that it is given a prominence, a prominent place therein. Let the reader duly observe the variety of expressions which are employed by the Spirit to set forth this progress or development, thereby preserving us from too circumscribed a conception by showing us the many-sidedness of the same. Some of them relate to what is internal, others to what is external. Some of them describe the divine operations, others the necessary acts and exercises of the Christian. Some of them make mention of increased light and knowledge, others of increased grace and strength. Yet others of increased conformity to Christ and his fruitfulness. It is thus that the Holy Spirit has preserved the balance, and it is by careful noting the same that we shall be kept from a narrow and one-sided idea of what spiritual growth consists. If due attention be paid to this very description, we shall be kept from painful mistakes and the better enabled to test or measure ourselves and discover what spiritual stature we have, statute, stature we have attained unto. This is an intensely practical subject. From what we have pointed out in the last few paragraphs, it will be seen that this is an intensely practical subject. It is no small matter that we should be, shall be able to arrive at the clear apprehension of what spiritual growth actually consists of, and thereby be delivered from mistaking it for mere fantasy. If there be conditions which we have to comply with in order to make a progress, it is more desirable that we should acquaint ourselves with the same and then translate such knowledge into prayer. If God has appointed certain means and aids, the sooner we learn what they are and make diligent use of them, the better for us. And if there be other things which act as deterrents and are in Nimical to our welfare, the more we are placed upon our ground, the less likely we are to be hindered by them. And, if Christian growth has many sides to it, this should govern our thinking and acting therein. That we may arrive after a fitly proportioned and well-rounded Christian character and grow up into Christ, not merely in one or two aspects, but in all things, that our development may be uniform and symmetrical. Chapter 2. Its Root. 
Before attempting to define and describe what spiritual growth of a Christian consists of, we should first show that it is capable of growth. What is what it is that is capable of growth? For spiritual growth necessarily supposes the presence of spiritual life. Only a regenerated person can grow. Progress in the Christian life is impossible unless I be a Christian. We must therefore begin by explaining what a Christian is. To many of our readers, this may appear to be quite superfluous, but in such a day as this, wherein spiritual counterfeits and delusions abound on every side, when so many are deceived on the all-important matter and because of such wide, widely different classes, we deem it necessary to follow this course. We dare not take for granted that all of our readers are Christians in the spiritual sense of that term. And it may please the Lord to use what we are about to write to give light to some who are yet in darkness. Moreover, it may be the means of enabling some Christians now confused to see the way of the Lord more clearly. <clears throat> Nor will it be altogether profitless, we hope, even to those more fully established in the faith. Three kinds of Christians. Broadly speaking, there are three kinds of Christian. Preacher-made, self-made, and God-made ones. In the former, we incline not only to those who are sprinkled in infancy and thereby made members of a church, though not admitted to all its privileges. But those who have reached the age of accountability and are induced by some high-pressure evangelist to make a profession. This high-pressure business is in different forms and in varying degrees, from appeals to the emotions to mass hypnotism, whereby crowds are induced to come forward. Under it, countless thousands whose consciences were never searched and who had no sense of their lost condition before God were persuaded to do many to do the manly thing, enlist under the banner of Christ, unite with God's people in this crusade against the devil. Such converts are like mushrooms. They spring up in the night and survive but a short time, having no root. Similar, too, are the vast majority produced under what is called personal work, which consists of a species of individual buttonholing, and is conducted along the lines by using commercial travelers seeking to make a forced sale. The self-made class is made up of those who have been warned against what has been just described above, and fearing of being deluded by such religious hucksters, they determined to settle the matter directly with God in the privacy of their own room or secluded spot. They have been given to understand that God, that God loves everybody and that Christ died for the whole human race and that nothing is required of them but faith in the gospel. By saving faith, they suppose that a mere intellectual assent to or acceptance of such statements as are found in John 3.16, Romans 10.13, is all that is intended. It matters not that John 2, 23 and 24 declare that many believed in his name, but Jesus did not commit himself unto them. And many believed on him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Which shows how much their believing was worth. Imagining that the natural man is capable of receiving Christ as personal Savior, they made the attempt. Doubt not their success. Go on their way rejoicing. And none can shake their assurance that they are now real Christians. No man can come unto me except the Father which has sent me draw him. John 6.44 Here is a declaration of Christ, Christ, which has not received even mental assent by the vast majority of Christendom. It is far too fresh a basing to meet with acceptance from those who wish to think that the setting of a man's eternal destiny lies entirely within his own power. That fallen man is wholly at the disposal of God is thoroughly unpalatable to the unhumbled heart. To come to Christ is a spiritual act, and not a natural act, not a natural one. And since the unregenerate are dead in sins, they are quite incapable of any spiritual exercises. Coming to Christ is the effect of the soul's being made to fill its desperate need of him, and of understandings 
being enlightened to perceive his situation for a lost sinner, of the affections being drawn out so as to desire him. And how can one whose natural mind is enmity against God have any desire for his son? God made Christians are a miracle of grace, the products of divine workmanship, Ephesians 2.10. They are a divine creation, brought into existence by supernatural operations. By the new birth we are capacitated for communion with the triune Jehovah, for it is the spring of a new sensibilities and activities. It is not our old nature made better and excited into spiritual acts, but instead something is communicated which was not there before. That something partakes of the same nature as it is begotten. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit, John 3.6. And as he is holy, so that he what he produces is holy. It is the God of all grace who brings us from death into life, and therefore it is the principle of grace which he imparts to the soul and disposes it unto fruits which are well-pleasing unto him. Regeneration is not a protracted process, but it is an instantaneous thing to which nothing can be added, nor from it anything taken away, Ecclesiastes 3.14. It is a product of a divine fiat. God speaks and it is done. It is a subject and the subject of it becomes immediately a new creation, a new creature. Regeneration is not the outcome of any clerical magic, nor does the individual experiencing it supply out there too. He is passive and unconscious recipient of it, said truth incarnate, which were born, not of blood, already he makes no contribution thereto, for God has regenerated heathens whose ancestors for centuries have been gross idolaters, nor of the will of the flesh, for prior to the divine quickening, the will of that person was inveterably opposed to God, nor of the will of man. The preacher was incapable of regenerating himself, much less others, but of God. 1 John 1.13 By a sovereign and almighty power. And again, Christ declared. John 3.8 The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof. Its, its effects are quite manifest. <clears throat> but canst not tell where it cometh and whither it goeth. Its causation and operation are entirely above human ken, a mystery no finite intelligence can solve. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, in certain exceptional cases, but in all who experience the same, such divine declarations are as far removed from most of the religious teaching of the day as light is from darkness. The word Christian means an anointed one, as of the Lord Jesus uh, as the Lord Jesus is the anointed, or the Christ. That was one of the titles accorded him in the Old Testament. The kings of the earth have set themselves, and rulers have taken counsel against the Lord and against his anointed, or Christ, Psalm 2.2. See Acts 2.26 and 27. He is thus designated because God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit, Acts 10.38, for induction into his office and endowment of his discharge thereof. That office has three branches, for he was not to act as a prophet, for he was to act as a prophet, priest, and king. And in the Old Testament, we find this foreshadowed in the anointing of Israel's prophets, 1 Kings 19.16, their priests, Levitic, Leviticus 8.30, and their kings, 1 Samuel 10.1, 2 Samuel 2.4. Accordingly, it was upon entrance into this public ministry the Lord Jesus was anointed. For in his baptism, the heavens were opened unto him, and there was seen the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And the Father's voice was heard, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, Matthew 3.16 and 17. The Spirit of God had come upon others before that, but never as he had now come upon the incarnate Son. For God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him, John 3.34. For being the Holy One, there was nothing whatever in him to oppose the Spirit or grieve him, but everything to the contrary. 
But it was not for himself alone that Christ received the Spirit, but to share with and communicate unto his people. Hence in another of the Old Testament types we read, Psalm 132.2, The pressure ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, upon Aaron's beard, that ran down to the skirts of his garments. Though all Israel's priests were anointed, none but the high priest was done so upon the head. Leviticus 8.12 The foreshadowing of the Savior being anointed, not only as our great high priest, but also as the head of his church. And the running down of the sacred ungent to the skirts prefigured the communication of the Spirit to all the members, even the lowliest of his mystical body. 2 Corinthians one twenty two. Now he who hath anointed us as God, who hath sealed us and given us the earnest of his Spirit in our hearts. John one sixteen. Of his, that is Christ's, fullness we have received. We have all received. <clears throat> when the apostles were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to preach, speak with other tongues the Spirit, as the Spirit gave them utterance. On the day of Pentecost, some mocked. But Peter declared, Acts 2.33, this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel and concluded by affirming that Jesus had been at the right hand of God exalted and having received of the Father, he had, set, had shed this, forth this. A Christian then is an anointed one because he has received the Holy Spirit from Christ the anointed and hence it is written, but ye have an unction or anointing from the Holy One that is from Christ. And again, the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you, 1 John 2, 20 and 27. For just as we read of the Spirit descending and remaining on him, John 1, 33, so he abides with us forever, John 14, 16. This is the inseparable accompaniment of the new birth. The regenerated soul is not only made the recipient of new life, but the Holy Spirit is communicated to him. And by the Spirit, then, he is vitally united to Christ, for that he is joined to the Lord by one Spirit, in what is one Spirit, 1 Corinthians 6.17. The Spirit comes to indwell so that his body is made his temple. It is by this anointing or inhabitation the regenerate person is sanctified or set apart unto God, consecrated to him, and given a place in that holy priesthood, which is qualified to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ, 1 Peter 2.5. Thereby, the saint is sharply distinguished from the world, for... Romans 8, 9, If any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. The Spirit is the identifying mark or seal, as it was by the Spirit's descent on Christ that John recognized him, John 1, and him hath God the Father sealed, John 6, 27. So believers are sealed with the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 1, 13. But since the individual concerned in regeneration is entirely passive, and at the moment of conscious of what is taking place, the question arises, how is the soul to ascertain whether or not he has been divinely quickened? At first sight, it might appear that no satisfactory can be forthcoming, yet a little reflection will show that this must be far from being the case. Such a miracle of grace wrought in a person cannot long be imperceptible to him. If spiritual light be imparted to one dead in sins, its presence must soon become manifest. This is indeed the case. The new, th new birth becomes apparent by the effects it produces, namely, spiritual desires and spiritual exercises. As the natural infant cleans and sinking to its mother, so the spiritual babe turns unto the one who gave, who gave it being. The authority of God is felt in the conscience. The holiness of God is perceived by the, unenlightened, by the enlightened understanding. Desires after him stir within the soul. The wondrous grace is now faintly perceived by the renewed heart. There is a poignant consciousness of that which is opposed to the glory of God, a sense of our sinnership, such as was not experienced formerly. 
the natural man, all that he has as a fallen creature by the first birth, receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. 1 Corinthians 2.14 By no efforts of his own, by no university education, by no course of religious instruction can he obtain any spiritual or vital knowledge of spiritual things. They are utterly beyond the range of his faculties. Self-love blinds him. Self-pleasing chains, self-pleasing chains him to the things of time and sense. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He may obtain a notional knowledge of them, but until a miracle of grace takes place in the soul, he cannot have any spiritual acquaintance with them. Fishes could sooner live on dry ground, or birds exist beneath the waves, than an unregenerate person enter into a vital and experimental acquaintance with the things of God. The first effect of the spiritual life in the soul is that its recipient is convicted of his impurity and guilt. The conscience is quickened, and there is a piercing realization of both personal pollution and criminality. The illuminated mind sees something of the awful malignity of sin, as being in its very nature contrary to the holiness of God, and in its essence nothing but eye-handed rebellion against him. From that arises an abhorrence of it as the most vile and loathsome thing. The demerit of sin is seen so that the soul is made to fill. It has grievously provoked the Most High, exposed him to divine wrath, made aware of the plague of the heart, knowing himself to be justly liable to the awful vengeance of the Almighty. His mouth is stopped. He has not a word to say in self-extenuation. He confesses himself to be guilty before him. And henceforth, that which most deeply concerns him is, what must I do to be saved? In what way can I escape the doom of the law? The second effect of the spiritual life in the soul is that its recipient becomes aware of the suitability of Christ to such a vile wretch as he now discovers himself to be. The glorious gospel now has an entirely new meaning for him. He requires no urging to listen to its message. He is heavenly, it is heavenly music to his ears, good news from a far country, Proverbs 25.25. Nay, he now searches the scriptures for himself to make sure that such a gospel is not too good to be true. As he reads therein of who the Savior is and what he did, of the divine incarnation and his death on the cross, he is awed as never before. As he learns that it was for sinners, for the ungodly, for enemies that Christ shed his blood, hope is awakened in his heart, and he is kept from being overwhelmed by his burden of guilt and from sinking into abject despair. Desires of an interest in Christ spring up within his soul, and he is resolved to look for salvation in none other. He is convinced that pardon and security are to be found in Christ alone, if so be that he will show his, him favor. He searches now to discover what Christ's requirements are. A Christian is not only one anointed by the Spirit, but he is also one that is a disciple of Christ. See Matthew 28, 19, margin, Acts eleven twenty six. That is, a learner and follower of Christ. His terms of discipleship are made known in Luke 14, 26-36. Those terms a regenerate soul is enabled to comply with. Convicted of his lost condition, being learned that Christ is now the appointed and self-sufficient Savior for sinners, he now throws down the weapons of his rebellion, repudiates his idols, relinquishes his love of, of and the fellowship of the world, surrenders himself to the Lordship of Christ, takes his yoke upon him, and thereby finds rest unto his soul, trusting in the efficacy of the atoning blood, the burden of guilt is removed. And henceforth, his dominant desire and endeavor is to please and glorify his Savior. Thus, regeneration issues and, and evidences itself by conversion. And genuine conversion makes one a disciple of Christ, following the example he has left us. And we'll stop there. So uh, we got through two chapters.
introduction and its root. And then, Lord willing, next week we'll look at its necessity. I really like Pink because what Pink has basically done is he was an expert on the Puritans. And he knew the Puritans inside and out, and he knew Reformed theology inside and out, and he basically put it into books that are easy to understand and uh, quite thorough. And uh, we can never study sanctification too much. It's one of those things that we could study more and more and more. But we'll stop there. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the ministry of our brother Pink. Ingrain these thoughts into our mind. Encourage us, Lord. Cause us to love your word. Cause us to pray. Cause us to more and more put off sin and put on righteousness as we look to Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.